How many of us are glad that our mothers called our name in prayer? Amen? I am. I know my mother still prays for me, and I am honored by that. You know, my, uh, I love that scripture there at the end of Proverbs where it says, her children will arise and call her blessed. And um, I pray that is true for my kids. In fact, I, I teach them to do that. All right, everybody stand up around the table and bless your mother because she loves you. She sacrifices for your good. And um, um, I pray that uh, that would be true in our home and true in yours too. Um, that the moms that are present there um, would not only be honored, but be worthy of honor uh, as mothers who fear the Lord. Um, I'm really glad to, uh, to be with you this morning. We need to pray for one thing that um, I forgot to underline uh, with Mark, but our brother Marv Yoakum is in hospice care at home at this point. And um, he's probably only got a few days, honestly. Uh, he has known the Lord is, um, for many years, but uh, he is going to meet him soon. And so let's pray for Marv and for Charlotte uh, and their family here for just a minute. God, our Heavenly Father, we do pray for our brother Marv. Uh, we know that he is in uh, considerable pain that his body is shutting down, and that soon he will shut his eyes for the final time and then open them in your presence. And Father, I pray that you would, at this point, speed his homecoming, that you would draw him into your presence, because while to live is Christ, to depart and be in the presence of the Lord is far better. And to die is gain. And Father, we pray uh, for Marv and for Charlotte for strength in these uh, final days. His Father, we pray that um, that they would recognize and experience the presence of Your Spirit with them in the room and in their life. Father, we pray uh, for Your healing for those in His family and those who know and love him who are going to be left here behind for a few years yet. Father, that you would bind up the brokenhearted and be very present with them and help them to heal as well. Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you this morning, very few things in my life bring me as much joy as worshiping with all of you. I really enjoy being part of your company and being part of the fellowship of the body of Christ here. Uh, we, have a, we have a wonderful body of Christ to be part of, and I hope you came this morning joyfully and with eager expectation that God was going to receive your worship offered to him in a spirit of humility and praise, and I hope that you also came expecting to hear from the Lord as you worshiped him this morning. Uh, if not, it is not too late to make adjustments. Amen? 
you are here, and now is as good a time as any to uh, expect the Lord to speak to you, because the Word of God is not simply given to us to make us smarter sinners. Amen? We are here to be transformed as God's Word speaks to us by the Spirit of God to our hearts, and to be transformed from the inside out to until we look like, as Paul says, until we attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to Christ, until we, in a sense, grow up. You know, like we used to have a wall, I painted it this last summer, where we had marked the kids' heights on pencil, you know, and we'd write the date and their name, right? And they want to see, they always want to see how big they're getting. Now they just come over next to me and stand and go, up to your shoulder now, Pop, I'm getting big, you know. My, my oldest daughter, poor Sarah, I don't think she's going to be as tall as Dad. But the idea as we grow and as we mature is that we take in God's Word, that we submit to its instruction by the Spirit of God and by the enabling power of the Spirit, and that we then grow and mature and grow up until we are as tall as Jesus, in a sense. And we look like Him. We take on His character. And part of that maturing process involves giving up things that are, quote, your rights. Things that you believe that you have the right to. And the Corinthian church, we've been looking at them for the last uh, many weeks now, um, they held to the erroneous assumption that just because you had the right to do something, that it was therefore right to do that thing. And that is, if there's nothing prohibiting me from doing this, or sanctioning me if I engage in it, then it's all I need to know. And I, that's what I'm going to do. And that is a deeply selfish and prideful attitude. And it's an attitude to which we as Americans can be particularly prone. Remember how our founding document begins about the second paragraph? It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable, what? Rights. And that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Or to bring that up into modern-day 21st century vernacular, the right to live, the right to do what I want and pursue happiness however I want, to let my freak flag fly, to quote David Crosby, right? That this is what it means to be an American, is to do what I want and have no one to stand above me and tell me that what I want to do is wrong. Now, the, where do we get that notion? Well, we're Western people. We descend, in, at least culturally, from the Greco-Roman world that Paul wrote to, and so we share intellectual, philosophical, cultural links with these people. And so this passage, though it's written to address a particular issue at a particular time and place, 
also addresses an attitude to which we are heir and to which we are prone as people. So this passage has enormous application for us. And I want to show it to you. Um, that, that, and I want you to see that just because you may have the right to do something doesn't mean that makes it therefore right to do. Amen? All right, so we've been looking at 1 Corinthians. We're ready for chapter 9 this morning. And Paul is going to talk about his rights and how he knows that he has them and then turn it around at the end of the chapter so that they see that just because he has those rights doesn't mean he has to exercise them. So I want to look here, beginning of verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Now, there are two things you need to be aware of as you look at this this uh, passage, first you need to be aware of the wider context. And, and the Corinthians is written primarily as a letter of correction, but it's also written as a way of addressing some questions that have come up in the Corinthian church, and they're wanting to get authoritative apostolic answers on that. And the, the question that has come up is, uh, it's addressed beginning in verse 8, and it's also addressed in chapter 9, it's also addressed in chapter 10. So we're going to be on this, hammering on this, this problem that they're having for a while. But the, the issue is, why can't we, Paul, eat food sacrificed idols in the idol temples? Remember I talked about last week how all of these pagan temples had these big public spaces that were part of the temple that you could rent for parties. And people did, and they would hold funerals there, and birthday parties, and celebrations of new babies, and election victories, and all this kind of thing in there. And, and because it was attached to the temple, one of the cheap, easily accessible ways to get meat to serve at the party was buying it from the temple after it had been sacrificed to this idol. And the Corinthians grow up in a culture and are part of a culture that commonly does this. Now they become Christians, and Paul says, stop eating in the idol temples. You're fellowshipping with demons when you do that. And they go, well, wait a minute, hold on. This is chapter 8. We've got all kinds of good reasons why we can do this. I mean, after all, we know that the idol is nothing. We know that there's only one true God, and so the idol doesn't represent anything real. And we have special knowledge, and... And we can do this. And Paul says, no, you cannot do that. That's chapter 8. Chapter 9, and there say also in chapter 8, if you look at verse 9 of chapter 8, Paul refers to it as this right of yours. One of the other arguments that they're making is, Paul, we have the right to do this. 
because we're free people in Jesus, and we have this right to be able to do what we want. And so Paul says in chapter 9, essentially, you want to talk about rights? Okay, let's talk about rights. Let's address that. So that's the wider context. And you, and you need to key in on that verse uh, there in, in chapter, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. And all of chapter 9 is addressing that concept of, I have the right to do this, therefore I'm going to. And, uh, and if you want to if, if paraphrase what Paul is saying, he's saying, okay, you want to talk about rights? I'll talk about rights. Let me talk about my rights, first of all, as an apostle. And so he asks them, at the beginning of the chapter here, four rhetorical questions. And the implied answer to all these questions is, yes. Am I not free? Well, yes, Paul, of course you are. You're not a slave. Am I not an apostle? Well, yes, of course you are. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Well, yeah, he has. Uh, are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Obviously, they are. The Corinthian church would not exist apart from Paul going there and sharing the gospel with them and leading them to faith in Christ. And he says, look, if you are, the whole reason your church even exists is because of me. If I hadn't gone there under the empowerment of the Spirit and shared the gospel with you, none of you would know Christ. And so you are the seal of my apostleship. You you." certify that I really am an apostle because you exist and you would not exist apart from my being there and since Paul since the Corinthians uh, issue of their so-called right eat in, in is, is eat in the pagan temples is the problem Paul turns it around and he starts to ask questions about what he has the right to do he says don't I have the right to eat and drink Yes. Don't I have the right to take along a believing wife uh, like the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that is Peter? By the way, you cannot make, just as an aside, you cannot make a good argument for either the perpetual virginity of Mary or the idea of, of celibacy among the priests or the popes, or whatever you want to call it, because all of the early disciples of Jesus were married, and the word here that's used clearly references Jesus' brothers. In other words, Mary had other kids, okay? That's just an aside, but it's right here in the text. If you need to see that, see that, okay? Um, that's a tangent. Let me circle back around. All right. Uh, Paul's answer to all these questions that he's asking in the rest of this first section here is that, yes, I have the right to do these things. As an apostle, I have the right to uh, be supported materially such that I can eat and drink. I have the right not only to support for myself, but to support for a believing wife. You know, in other words, to not just enough support for me, but enough for a family as well. And... He says, just like the other apostles, just like the brothers of the Lord, just like Peter, I have the right to do all this. And he, and he draws not only 
on the example of the other apostles, but he also draws on the example of soldiers and farmers. He says, look, a soldier has his expenses paid by someone else. He doesn't, buy, he doesn't have to go and buy his own rations when he's deployed. They're provided. He's not buying his own bullets, taking them to combat. No, the, the, his employers provide that. His uniform, etc., the tank to drive around in. You know, that's all provided. Same deal. If, you're, if you plant a vineyard, it's, you should naturally assume you're not going to have to go buy grapes. You're going to, if you want grapes, go out and pick some. There are a bunch of them. If you, similarly, if you have flocks or you have herds and you're, you'd like milk or cheese, there's the cow. Go get some. And that's the right of the person who, who, is, um, who is working to be compensated for their labor. How many of you have jobs? How many of you will stop showing up as soon as they stop paying you? <laughs> okay. Some of you moms are going, yeah, I wish I could get paid. <laughs> but, um, but if you have a, a job outside the home that you're being compensated for, most of us will not keep going once the checks stop coming. Right? That's a biblical thing that you're, that you're to pay the worker what you owe them. And, and Paul says, look, you have the right to do that. And on top of that, he applies it to gospel preachers, and he says those who preach the gospel have the right, therefore, just like farmers, to collect from the fruit of what their preaching produces. So, in other words, Paul led people to Christ. He established churches. He had the right to expect that those churches would turn around and support him in what he was doing. Those who preach the gospel have the right to be supported by the fruit of the gospel. Okay, Now, Paul, Paul is making this argument, he's giving lots of examples, and he says, in fact, this is not just a, a common human thing, this is a divine thing, and that's the next section. So look with me here at the text. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not speak entirely for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now again, the major point is this that he has, as an apostle who planted their church, the right to expect support from the Corinthians. And it's not just a logical conclusion. It's also in something that is encoded in God's law. And to back this up, 
Paul quotes this command from Deuteronomy chapter 24, I think it's verse 5, that says, do not muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain. And scholars debate back and forth as to what that, how, that, how exactly that's meant to be understood. Is that a proverbial statement like you can't teach a dog new, old dog new tricks that applies not just to dogs but to people as well? Or is this something that God is specifically commanding you've got to take care of your ox? I think it's both that God is in all of Deuteronomy chapter 24 is all about justice in relationships between people. And so you have commands that relate to the establishment of justice in a society and to, the, uh, and to just relationships one to another and how you're to treat each other. And I think that extends even to your animals. That those who have an animal are supposed to take care of it. You're not to abuse your animal. That's a biblical thing. Uh, you're not to be a cruel person. And if you have an ox and he's working, even the ox gets a share of the crops that you are bringing in because he is to be rewarded for the labor that he is doing. And Paul says, look, he's, this is a very humble way of referring to yourself. He says, look, if even the ox gets to eat from the crops, then I'm an ox and I ought to get to eat from the crops. And he says, look, the law says that, that even the, if even the oxen get to eat from the crops they're threshing, then I get to eat from the crops I'm producing, which are you all, he says, the Corinthians. And in addition to that, um, he extends it a little further. And he talks about, look, you know, that the plowman plows, the guy who comes in, you know, this is we're a little late getting started this time of year, but you see some fields being tilled, and you till and you plant the seed, right? And you plant in expectation and hope that in the fall, the crops are going to come in and you're going to have something, particularly in those days, something to eat, or in our day, something to sell. You're going to share in the crop that comes in. Same deal when you hire the threshers that came in, you know, they didn't have those gigantic John Deere combines. You would hire everybody in the community to come in with their scythes and so forth and to cut down the crop, and to, then you would thresh it, and you'd separate the grain from the husks and so forth. And then the payment due to those laborers was the crop that they brought in. You paid them out of the crops that came in. And so they were, had an incentive to do a good job and get all the grain out of the field because what they were going to make bread with all winter until the next harvest was the crops they were bringing in. And so um, he says, if we have sown in the same way, he says, if I'm a farmer, as a spirit, I'm a spiritual farmer, if I've sowed spiritual things among you, and he has, is it too much that I should get material things as a reward? Now, Paul was impoverished most of the time. He made tents, but he spent most of his time preaching the gospel and not, not making tents. So he basically did just enough to get, to get food for the day. He says, look, I'm not going to 
I'm not going to devote my energy to this, but this is, this is how I need to make a living. And so he made a, he made a living doing that. But he says, look, I've given you things that are going to benefit you in eternity, and you're going to have enormous spiritual reward as a result of my work um, both now and in the future. And so it's not too much to expect that I would get paid. A reasonable expectation. And despite that, he never asked them for one solitary dime. He says, I have the right to this. I have a biblical right to that. But I've never asked you for a dime because I would rather do anything than put any stumbling block in the way. Look at this. We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. See, in, in, the, in the ancient Greco-Roman world that Paul was a part of, there were all kinds of traveling, itinerant preachers and teachers that floated around. Some of them would you know, be proselytizing for Stoicism or, or Cynicism or Platonism or whatever, and they would travel around and they would take on students and teach. And depending on the guy, it could be a fantastic way of making money. And Paul never wanted himself and his gospel preaching to be associated with these guys that traveled around hawking their teaching to whoever would listen. You know, just like as an example, um, if asked, I will not do a gospel preaching infomercial. Right? Why? Because I don't want somebody to think that Following Jesus is like buying a ShamWow. Okay? Which I still think is an awesome product, by the way. And, and by the way, you know, it's just like when you watch that late night TV and you're like, ooh, you know, you're up late, you can't sleep, and you're watching, you know, the Ronco rotisserie, and you're thinking to yourself, I could use a Ronco rotisserie, right? No one needs a Ronco rotisserie. But at late at night, it appeals, right? Uh, but Paul says in the same way, he does not want anybody to think that he is into preaching Jesus because he likes to make lots of money. And so he says, I am not going to confuse the issue for somebody, and so I am going to preach for free so that no one can accuse me of being in it for the money. And I would rather do anything than confuse the issue. As to why I'm doing this. Because I have the right to it. But I love people. And I love Jesus. That I will give up my right. Even to material support. And I will live impoverished as he did. Rather than. Put a stumbling block in the way of somebody coming to Christ. Being able to write me off. So. Uh, in addition to that, here in the, in the last part of this section, he gives two other reasons why he has the right to support. He comes back to this. He says that, look, those who work in the temple, both the Levites as well who worked in the temple and the, the priests who were at the altar taking the sacrifices, they got supported by the work of the temple. So when you put money into the temple treasury, it got paid out to the people who worked there. When you brought sacrifices into the temple, uh, the guy who 
offered your animal got to take part of the stakes home. That's part of how that was part of the benefits of being there. They had no inheritance in the land and their needs were provided for by their service at the temple. And and then he on top of that underlines the fact that Jesus says that Jesus says that those who, who preach the gospel ought to make their living from it. That's a pretty good summary. If you want to look at John, or rather Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 to 15, where, where Jesus says in Matthew there, take no money, take, don't take any extra sandals, don't take an extra cloak, uh, but when you get someplace, preach there and let the people there support you. So Paul gives six reasons in these first two sections why he has the right to be paid. Number one, because he's an apostle. Number two, because the other apostles and the Lord's brothers are supported as they preach, and not just them, but also their wives. Third, that because uh, he is like, as an apostle, he's like a soldier, a shepherd, or a farmer who are all supported by the work they do. Number four, because the Mosaic law commands that even oxen should eat from the work they perform. So how much more should apostles eat from the work that they do? And fifth, because those who serve in the temple get paid from the temple offerings. And finally, Jesus says that those who proclaim the gospel should be paid by those who hear it. These are all good reasons that Paul is giving to claim his right of support for the Corinthians. In other words, you guys think you've got rights. Let me tell you who's got rights. I got rights. He's, and he gives them six reasons why he has this right. Now look at the last section here, verses 15 to 18. But... I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward, but if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul is saying, look, I am willingly sacrificing my rights. And I have an ironclad right to this. And I am not writing, though. Don't get confused, in other words, Corinthians. I'm not writing this so that I can get support from you. What I'm doing instead is pointing my life before you as an example to follow that you don't have to always get your rights. Now, please don't misunderstand. Paul thinks they're in sin for eating food at the idol, idol temple after he has told them not to. But here he's making the case that in spite of all the good reasons that they have given to support their so-called rights, that other people are still more important. And he's demonstrated that with his own life. And in addition, Paul preaches, he says, I preach because I must. 
And he feels the weight of the responsibility with which he has been entrusted. He, he says, why do I preach? Because I must. I have to. Woe to me if I don't. God has called me. God called me on the Damascus Road and made me an apostle. And he told me, you are to go and preach in the name of Jesus. And he says, so woe to me if I don't. And if I preach willingly, in other words, if I take the assignment and say, yes, Lord, and go do it out of a good heart, then I get a reward. And that's worth working for. But if I preach not willingly, in other words, well, God told me I have to do this. He says, even then, I still have a stewardship that God has given me that I have to disclose. I have to walk in the way God has commanded. I don't have a choice in this. Now, I can either do it willingly or unwillingly, but God has not given me an option. And I can either be rewarded or not rewarded, but I still have no choice. God has commanded me to preach the gospel. And he says, and I don't want anything to stand in the way of people hearing it in the way that it needs to be explained. He says, look, you all are, this is what he's saying, you all are so knowledgeable that you think that you have the right to do what I have instructed you and commanded you against and eat in these idol temples. And you're going to insist on your rights regardless of the impact on other people. Remember, we looked at that last week. He says, other people who might be trying to come to Christ, see you eating in the idol temple and conclude there's really nothing different about your Christianity because you fit into the wider culture. And so maybe they just believe and they see you eating there and they fall right back into their paganism. Or maybe they're wanting to believe and they're looking to see if there's anything that distinguishes you from the average pagan they know and they find out there's not. And you throw up roadblocks to people coming to Christ. He says, I won't throw up even a roadblock that deeply, personally affects me. Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about how many nights he was floating in the open ocean, how many nights he spent outside being rained on. That he was frequently dressed in rags. That he, you know, this is a guy who, you know, when I go and preach somewhere, I get to do that from time to time. They, they put me up in a nice home. They feed me. Then they pay me. Okay? When Paul went to go preach somewhere, they had riots and tried to kill him. It's a little bit different kind of scenario, right? You know, where I go preach, they serve tea. They served him rocks thrown at his head. It's a little different deal. Paul says, I would rather give up everything, even that that I have the right to, rather than put a stumbling block, big or small, to somebody coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And his point is, look, I'm willing to forego even something that's biblically supported, even something that's commanded that other people do for me, so that nothing stands in the way of the gospel. 
And so then the implied question is, why are you not willing to give up your so-called rights to eat in the idol temple when it clearly stands in the way of the gospel? Why would you rather compromise your faith, accommodating to the surrounding culture and diminishing the effectiveness of your gospel witness? Why would you rather have your rights and destroy your testimony? In other words, that is the bottom line point Paul is making in this whole chapter. And he's asking them, what does it say about your faith when there's nothing you're willing to sacrifice so that others can see Jesus clearly through your life and testimony? And that leads me to the application for us. I want you to look at your life for just a minute. And in fact, before we do this, let me just pray and ask the Holy Spirit to speak to all of us. Okay? God, our Heavenly Father, you have promised that when the Spirit comes, and He has come, that He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Father, we know that He is active in touching unbelievers that they might come to recognize their sin, the rightness of your judgment against it, and that the only way to achieve righteousness before you is to turn to Jesus, who imparts to us a righteousness that's not our own. Father, I pray, too, that those who are yours here in this room, and there are many who belong to you here, that we would also be convicted of sin. Any areas that we're, where we are putting up roadblocks. Father, help the words I speak be honoring to you, manifest in the lives of your people. Amen. Now let's look at this question. And, and if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you on this, let him speak to you. And then change. Hear me? Don't just, don't just feel that prick of the Spirit speaking and then go, okay, well, that was good for this week. On to the next. Okay? Listen to what he says. What are the stumbling blocks to the gospel in your life? Think about it. What are the areas of your life where you have compromised your gospel witness by the way that you speak or the way that you think or the way that you act, the things that you do or don't do. Where have you accommodated your life to the culture around you in such a way that there seems to be little difference between what you do and what an unbeliever does. What are the sins that you coddle and cuddle up to like a little kid with his blankie that you cling to so tightly that you've even forgotten to make excuses for them anymore? 
what are the sins you no longer even want to be free of because they have become so part of your life that now you do make excuses for them like this? Well, you know, that's just who I am. That's, that's just part of my personality. I was raised that way. You know, I just, I just have always done things like that. What are the roadblocks? Because here's the deal. It's not enough to simply feel badly about our sin. I mean, that's a good start. But unbelievers feel badly about their sin from time to time. Issue is this. Conviction comes from the Spirit to lead us to repentance, change. Amen? So don't just feel bad. Repent. Change. Tear down the roadblock. Last question I'm going to ask you. What are you willing to sacrifice so that others can hear and see the gospel clearly? Remember, we follow a crucified man. We follow a man who was made an outcast, who was wearing when he was dead all of the clothes that he owned. Who said, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He had nothing. was dependent totally on the kindness of other people to eat who said if anyone would come after me let him first deny himself take up his cross and follow me in other words not just be willing to die but be willing to die in the most shameful humiliating outcast horrible way imaginable The book of Hebrews says that he was crucified outside the camp. And he says, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. A lot of American Christendom promises you that if you come to Jesus, that your life will get better and you'll become wealthy and healthy and wise. And, you know, it'd be like Ben Franklin, you know, a little Christianity instead of an apple, right? You know? Jesus a day, keeps the doctor away, you know, makes him early to bed, early to rise, makes a man healthy, wealthy and wise, right? Uh, you know, poor Richard's almanac kind of stuff, right? Jesus says, no, you come follow me and you lay your life down and you be willing to go even to shameful, humiliating, naked, bleeding death for me. And then you're worthy of the kingdom. What are you willing to sacrifice that others may be willing, may be able to see and hear the gospel clearly? Is your burden for the lost great enough that you are willing to do everything in your power to ensure that the gospel is clear both in your verbal testimony and in your life that others might see a consistency between what you say 
and who you are. What are you willing to give up? What are you willing to sacrifice? Do you actually have enough love for other people that you are willing to change your life for your joy, their good, and God's glory? What are you willing to sacrifice that the gospel might advance? And by the way, it's not just a question of what are you willing to do. The question of what will you do? Because a lot of us are pretty good in theory. Well, if you know Jesus asked, and you know was martyrdom or denied Jesus, I, I'm right there. Okay, that opportunity may not come up. But what Jesus invites us to do most of the time in our culture is to die day by day to our rights and our privileges and the the padding and upholstering of our life with both material comfort and also sin that separates other people from being able to see Jesus clearly. What are you willing of your own life to put to death that other people might come authentically to faith in Christ? And you know what I think? I think that enough of us here in America did that and all of a sudden we'd have a great movement of the spirit across this country a lot of people worry about oh you know the debt and what about the government and oh you know the erosion of our rights and all that kind of thing and I, I can get on board with some of that but you know what's the bigger issue that Jesus people do not live as if they know Jesus and so, therefore, they are not a witness to the surrounding culture. And we have nothing to say that people can hear because our life gets in the way. So, what are we willing? Not just you. What about me? What are we willing to give up? Even things we have the right to that others might come to faith in Christ. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we are people conceived in sin and brought forth in iniquity, people for whom sin is our native language and heart's tongue. We are people who are bent away from you with everything that is within us until the day when we come to faith in Jesus Christ through your power, your might, by your spirit, transforming our hearts and giving us a new nature. Father, you tell us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone, the new has come. Father, we are grateful for the, the imputed righteousness of Christ where the righteousness of Jesus is credited to us because of his sacrifice on the cross. Father, we pray that we might manifest your imparted righteousness as well. That the Spirit being at work in us would clear away our sin, would motivate us to sacrifice everything 
that is needed. That the gospel might be more boldly and clearly and obviously proclaimed both with our mouth and with our heart and with our And Father, we pray that that you would move mightily by your spirit here in this place this morning, convicting hearts and changing lives, as is your specialty, that we might be transformed for our for our joy, for others' good and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name.